All right. Well, welcome everyone to this new episode of Disruptive Innovation and the podcast where we celebrate all things innovation. I am especially excited to welcome today's guest, Jared Tingle, who is a founding managing partner at Harlem Capital Partners. I first became aware of Jared during uh, July of this past year when I was reading one of my favorite publications, The Wall Street Journal, saw this wonderful photograph of Jared and his three partners from Harlan Capital, uh, all dressed Natalie in their navy blue suits, walking down the street, and was immediately struck by their mission and their vision. And the vision is to invest in 1,000 founding teams that are fulfilled by underrepresented founders. So, Jared, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. I know how crazy life has been from that moment when you guys uh, were revealed to the world through the Wall Street Journal. Look forward to having a, a really great discussion with you today. I look forward to it as well. And your persistence definitely helps. Yes. And, and uh, let's <laughs> I see, see why you get things done. Yeah, yeah. No, I am a persistent guy of nothing else. Absolutely. And, 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 and of course, you will, you, I'm sure you were as you were raising money. So, Jared, maybe what would be helpful for our listeners is just broad brushstrokes, kind of your background and, and, you know, some of the formative uh, educational and professional experiences that led you to where you are today. Sure. I'll give you a medium form version, but feel free to rush me through it if you need to. Um, But I grew up in New Jersey, outside of Philadelphia, was actually raised by a single mother and grew up in a low-income situation. But I was fortunate to have my grandparents actively in my life and then was forced to have a family that really emphasized education. So that kind of got me through the private school system in the area. But I was in a very different economic position than most of my classmates which did can fuel my fuel my competitive nature over time. But I was fortunate to get introduced to a program called New Jersey Seeds, which exposed me to boarding independent schools. And I landed at Petty, um, which is in Central Jersey, which was a fantastic experience for me to get prepared and really just take my education to the next level. I went to Penn for undergrad. I studied at the Wharton School, studied finance there was in some really interesting clubs that helped me learn more about finance and best prepare for the workforce. Um, After school, I ended up working at Barclays doing investment banking in a technology media and telecom group. This is after a junior internship. After Barclays for two years, I worked at a middle market private equity firm called ICV Partners. This was a very special experience for me, um, smaller firm, about 20 people, including investment team and staff, but it's a minority owned or, or black owned in particular firm. So it was helpful for me to have those visual examples of, hey, I know I'm smart, I know I'm capable, but what is it actually like to manage money? That's nothing that has ever been accessible to me, Yep. Um, but kind of working under them helped with that. Ended up going to Harvard Business School in 2017, so I just graduated in May. Um, had a very productive time there, and now I'm, I'm running Harlem Capital, and, and I can talk more about that. But we actually started Harlem Capital while we were working in private equity. My, my co-founder and I, Amory, um, so we were doing it part time through through private equity, part time through business school. We actually raised half of our fund between our first and second year. Uh, graduated with twelve and a half million dollars, then had our final close right before Thanksgiving of 2019, um, $40 million oversubscribed from our initial target of $25 million. 
That's great. And so, listen, we're going to dig in deep to Harlem Capital, but I want to go back to a couple of these formative moments. So, as you said, raised by a single mom with the benefit of grandparents close by, but without doubt, right, no question, you know, a real belief in education, which, of course, is is such an important part of, of, you know, how you've gotten to where you are. The Petty School, of course, for most of our listeners who've never heard of it, it's a very elite, you know, boarding school. It's considered one of the top 15 or 20 in the country in terms of, you know, its status, its ranking. I can imagine that was a remarkably uh, shaping experience for you for so many reasons. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what some of your key takeaways were there at that point in your life? Sure, sure. I mean, it was my first elite environment, if you will. I know that term may may not be great, but it it, it was the facts. Um, So I was exposed to people that their families were very well established. Um, They had a lot of resources. The campus itself was well-funded. We had an endowment of hundreds of millions of dollars, which was great for me because it meant that they could provide close to 100% financial aid. Right. Uh, But there I really learned about AP exams and honors classes and getting college credit. Yeah. I learned about Ivy League schools and how there's like a pipeline where if you have a good guidance counselor, you have the right testing, the right classes and the right extracurriculars, you can position yourself well for for those schools. Yeah. And then I just learned work-life balance. Um, We were required to play a sport or at least do an activity, uh, like a physical activity every trimester. So you had to be active. We had study hall, which enforced discipline. But ultimately, I think the the biggest thing that I learned there was how to be a self-starter. Yeah. Leaving home as a 14-year-old and having to be accountable for, for everything just helped me mature at a faster rate. And so by the time I got to college, I had been used to to really being my own boss, holding myself accountable, and just really driving my education, my career forward without the assistance much from, from family. That's great. So clearly a crucible, but an incredible opportunity to see the way that, you know, sort of what we what you refer to as sort of the, the, the elite world, the world of prestigious universities and and business schools operated and how to put yourself on that track. Um, you know, during that time, what sport did you play or, or what sport? Sure. Yeah. I played football and lacrosse. Okay. Um, only my first three years. Yeah. My senior, I decided just to focus on exams because I knew I wasn't going <laughs> to be playing sports in college. Um, and then I actually, I developed a, a really strong, um, I guess, interest in weightlifting um, yeah. and cardio. So okay. I've been doing that. Um, the whole time. And actually, it's funny. I mean, we had a, a really interesting coach who, or strength and conditioning coach who used to work with NFL players. And wow. so he really beat us up. Wow. Um, but I learned a lot. I mean, physically, it got me to a good place, but I think mentally, yeah. it just got me in a position where I just don't make excuses. And you just learn so much and you build so much character by having literally someone who is 6'6, 250, 3% body fat or whatever kind of <laughs> in your face, you in your grill as an as yeah. adolescent. Absolutely. So one last question about sort of your personal background. So as I look at your bio and I know, you know, you, you complimented me on my persistence. I will come right back at you and compliment you on your focus. Um, and what I'm obviously you've been busy raising the fund and that, you know, anybody who's raised the fund knows just how much work that is to raise fund one. Um, but it says that you enjoy working out, you enjoy travel, you enjoy reading, and you enjoy going to concerts. Do you still have time for that stuff, having learned some of the work-life balance at Petty? It's been tougher recently. Um, the, the good news is 
that VC is inherently social. Yeah. Between fundraising, meeting other investors and meeting founders, you do get fulfilled. I think I'm more in a work-life harmony bucket now. Yeah. I'm getting back to being more consistent with working out. Uh, we still do make time for fun, still go to concerts. So I think I'm doing everything, probably yeah. not as much as I would like to. Yeah. But I am getting a lot of fulfillment through through the business and still making sure to take care of my, my health and wellness. That's great. And just who, what kind of concerts do you enjoy going to at this stage of your life? Yeah, no, I think more more upbeat stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, I like hip hop, R and B, a little bit of rock. Um, I like the weekend a lot. Yeah, Kanye, cool. Drake. I mean, they're they're really good performers. Drake is getting there. I won't say he was always a great performer, right? Um, and then if there's ever you know a concert that my friends are excited about, I'm definitely willing to go. I used to like festivals, but I think I'm getting too old. They tend to be. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm tw- under, under 23 year olds. I don't know if I can keep up with them anymore. Yeah, it depends, right? I, I go to festivals all the time. I'm way older than you. I guess it depends on the festival and what's going on there, but I hear you, right? You got you got to really be, for me, it's all about the entire lineup. I got to be in, I got to be enthused about the whole lineup now. Not, I don't go for just one or two anymore. Well, listen, you're, you're a very humble man. And, and since you didn't say it, I'm going to say it for you. Um, Baker Scholar at Harvard Business School, which places you in the top 5% of your class. That's a remarkable achievement given the the talent pool, Forbes 30 under 30, and, and a lot of other honors, right? And and listen, I love your story. I love where you came from. I love how you got to where you are. You could easily today, you know, work in PE, work for BCG, McKinsey, Bain, and, and live an incredibly privileged life. Now, uh, one of the guys that I really enjoy uh, sharing with my students is Prince E.A. And one of his more classic videos is how to live, you know, before you die. And he talks about how Martin Luther King didn't have a dream. The dream had him. He, he could not have lived his life if he did not pursue his dream. What is it that motivates you so deeply and your partner, Henri, and, and the rest of your colleagues that given your backgrounds and given all of the economic opportunities available to you that you want to blow through this diversity barrier. How did, how did that all come to be? Yeah, that's, it's a really good question. And one that I have dwelled on. Um, Andre and I joke, we say this life chose us. So I think it's very similar to the sentiment yeah. you were trying to, to, to say. I mean, I think in general, I've always been trying to be prepared and I've always tried to just seize opportunities and really do my best in whatever setting. And so I did try for academic excellence at Wharton, at Petty, at HBS, but I knew in a grand scheme of things that may not move the needle um, for my career. But ultimately, I always wanted to just dominate wherever I was. And I knew that if I had that work ethic, it's a kind of good muscle to, to kind of exercise in that way when it is something that is focused on my career or something that I'm passionate about. It'll just, I've already be used to doing that. Yeah. Um, so I'll say this. I was interested in corporate America in the beginning because I don't come for money. Yeah. Um, and I, it's not about money for the sake of having money, but I do know what you're able to do with money as a tool. Yeah. You can send your kids to good schools. You can live in a good area. You can eat healthy. You can travel, et cetera. You can invest in interesting stuff. You just have a completely different opportunity set. That's what drove me. I learned about finance being at Penn where like half of the class ends up doing finance or consulting. Yeah. Right. Um, and then I think I said, hey, this is a path where it's lucrative, but it's also interesting. Every day is different. I'll be invigorated 
and work, maybe I'll find something else, but at least on this path, I know what to expect and I'm enjoying it. Yeah. Um, so I actually love private equity. One of my first internships was in private equity as a sophomore, but I figured by going around doing banking, I'd be more prepared to have better options. Yeah. Once I got to ICV, had a fantastic experience where we had a ton of like rigor in terms of analysis and whatnot, but we also had a balance of being exposed to more managerial level characteristics. Mm-hmm. Since it was such a small firm, we had to step up and talk to management teams and run our own processes, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but I think one thing that I did not like about private equity, I mean, it's, it's a great job. I mean, economics are great. The work is great. But, but the issue is it's so top heavy, especially for the mid-market firms. Yeah. And I love them a lot, but it's an industry problem where you have a bunch of people in their 50s, 60s, 70s who are holding a lot of economics, don't transition out. They don't have to transition out. And so as someone coming up the ranks, your upside is limited. Right. Um, and so we found pretty quickly that while this is a good path, you really get the upside and the benefits if you are an early joiner or founder of your own firm. Absolutely. And so by that period of time, I started considering that though I had no idea it would be this soon. Right. Um, just to, to kind of finish up, I originally had no interest in venture. Um, I knew private equity. I knew you could kind of control your own fate, whether it's owning the companies outright or having you know a more likely chance of generating returns um, than like industry average versus you know whatever. Um, but VC really came to mind because it was exciting. You heard about these tech companies going public and really changing things in a very short period of time on a relative basis. Yeah. But also the biggest thing that kind of honed us into Harlem Capital's mission was at ICV, we were a Black-owned firm. We focused on hiring diverse third parties whenever we could, right? Um, like our lawyer, our accountant. But the ownership of the companies tended to be what you would expect, right? Yeah. We had one woman CEO. The first one that ever happened, happened that we invested in happened when we were there. Yeah. No people of color. Right. And what we found is that there aren't enough companies to invest in ten plus million dollars of EBITDA right. for any private equity strategy. If you actually do want to focus on investing in these communities, you have to start earlier. Um, I think there's been some small business kind of things, but from a venture perspective, there's a ton of opportunity. Um, what you can do with capital um, and the pace and with the expectations. Um, and we thought, hey, if we actually care about generating wealth, let's do it. Um, for these communities. And also we have potentially more upside. So definitely lower entry point, but potentially greater upside, especially if we're able to do it while we're younger and retain um, some of those economics you get as a founder. That's great. So you saw firsthand sort of the Darth of, you know, um, minority led firms that were growth firms that, you know, that that really caused you to have a chance to reflect on, you know, there, there's a systemic problem here. And, and you saw that firsthand day to day. So, you know, diversity is a is a, a long overdue issue that it feels like we're finally just starting to deal with, right? And from the point of view of Silicon Valley, I know that there's been, you know, a significant amount of focus fairly recently, only in the last couple of years since the Me Too movement really took off. And a lot of these sexual harassment allegations were leveled at a number of uh, accelerator managers and, and VC fund partners. And I know Eileen Lee and others have been leading the charge about, you know, driving more inclusion around women specifically. Um, recently, I know the New England Venture Capital Association has made a statement that they would 
they would really work hard to try to increase diversity in the venture capital firms, uh, you know, uh, here in the New England community. And Goldman Sachs recently announced they won't uh, they won't be doing any more deals where there's not at least one woman on the board. So women seem to be getting a lot of support. Um, now, of course, Harlem Capital Partners is about a, a much broader range of diversity, right? People of color, people of ethnicity. Um, so I think you and I, Jared, are kindred souls. In my last startup, um, I was chief marketing and strategy officer. I had a team of 11 people. Um, not a single one carried a U.S. passport. Um, they came from, you know, every continent and, you know, of every race and creed. And 60% were women, Right. And I didn't do it because I said that this is the way I want to do it. I did it because I found the best people to fulfill those jobs. And those people happen to come from an incredibly diverse background, right? As a professor, I've always found when I've encouraged my students, would you please do your best to form diverse teams because diversity is an incredibly important part of innovation. The natural inclination is for five Indian guys or five Chinese girls to work together because they're just comfortable socially. But I know that there's a diversity dividend, and we spoke about this briefly just before the call, right? There have been a number of studies that have shown how when you've got one woman on the founding team, uh, they deliver higher returns relative to the portfolio. You had shared with me that, um, you know, diverse founding teams are able to raise more capital, right? But the, the hard evidence is certainly, you know, a long way away from being established because of where we are in this cycle. Talk to me about what diversity means to you and, and how you plan to systemically address this issue. Because you're, you're taking, you know, a variety of different approaches to do this, obviously. In terms of the, the firms you're investing in, the founding teams, the, the people that you're hiring, the people that you're looking to, you know, bring in as interns. I mean, you, you've got a very broad perspective on that. How do you think about, you know, uh, addressing this diversity challenge, which is so troubling today? Sure. And it's a very broad question. Yeah, so you bet. Maybe we get a part part B and part C after this. Yeah, that um, sounds great. But I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can you can cut diversity. You can say diversity of ethnicity, diversity of gender, diversity of thought, diversity of geography. Like there's a whole bunch of different ways to cut it. Yeah. But I do think too often it gets kind of put in the charity bucket. Yeah. And I think that's that's a disservice to to everyone. Um from Harlem Capital's vantage point, how we think about diversity is how do we think about who has been allocated capital historically um, and where should it go? Um, and so we looked at the population of the U.S. and it's 70 percent either women or underrepresented minority. We, we define that as black, Latinx, you know, et cetera, Native American. Um, and then these groups, including women of any race, they only get three percent of all VC funding when it's when they're running the company. And so it's just a disconnect. that just doesn't make sense to us. Um, and it should not be that way. But if you look at wealth concentration or you look at networks, et cetera, it's very clear that both wealth and information have been very closely held. Um, and so I can backtrack to, to what we had happened. I mean, so originally I kind of shortcutted, but we, we did not have diversity as a focus when Harlem capital was started. Interesting. We started with the name because we were living in Harlem. We thought yeah. it, it had a great brand. We, we loved what, it alluded to, if you think about like the Black Renaissance, things yeah. like that. But honestly, we did not have this as a focus. We had an angel syndicate. We had a couple of friends writing small angel checks. Um, but what happened was, as we started establishing a website, I started sourcing deals. 
we found that there were a ton of diverse candidates, um, diverse founders that wanted to raise VC, had a lot of traction, had a lot of growth potential, but were not getting capital, or at least not getting capital as easily. Absolutely. Um, on the flip side, we we were getting invited to speak as 25-year-olds writing 20K checks. It's, none of it made sense to us. Right. Um, but then as we took a closer look, we found that this probably persists because the capital allocators tend to not be diverse at all. Um, and this is a particularly detrimental at the early stage because ultimately, while you have metrics and stuff and you have TAM and everything, honestly, a lot of why people give early stage founders capital is because of, of subjective things. It's, hey, do I like you? Do I think you have passion? Do you have vision? Do you have potential? Are you going to be able to hire people, expire people, sell the customers? Like all these things that only time can tell. Right. There's not a lot of traction which you can can kind of dig into like you can for a, a public company or growth or private equity style company. Um, so we think that this subjectivity and this bias really persists because of the lack of representation at the early stage. And we think there's a lot of missed opportunities. And we think that there is alpha opportunity if you're able to come in and back these founders. There's too much potential. Um, and then honestly, if you look at the macro trends, you know, women are very highly educated. Now I think they're majority of the workforce. People of color are getting undergrad and master's degrees at a higher rate. But when you actually look at capital flows, it's lagging by a long shot. Yeah. Um, and there's a ton of reasons why, but honestly, we think that our strategy will help supercharge this. Yeah. And at the very least, we'll see some competitive opportunities that, or compelling opportunities rather, that others are missing. That's great. So one last, uh, just real quick observation, and we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to finish up by really doing a deep dive now into Harlem Capital and, and uh, you know, what you've, who you've been investing in and where we go from here. But uh, I don't know if you saw the, the recent Poet and Quant's very in-depth study where they looked at 27 business schools and, you know, tried to understand how they were teaching entrepreneurship. One of their most significant metrics is they looked at the top 100 companies coming out of these top business schools and how much money they raised. And probably of no surprise to you, the majority of the list was dominated by two schools, Harvard Business School and Stanford Graduate School of in Business. Okay. Now that's, that's a, only surprising because MIT had such a long head start, but because of the fact that so many Harvard MBAs go on to become BCs, as so many Stanford MBAs do, right? Exactly to your point. Right. They're going to invest in people that they know and trust. And very few things are more trustworthy than investing in a fellow alum that went to the same school I went to. Right. And so um, there's so much inherent bias in the system and it starts early. Right. It starts very early and it just propagates. So when we come back after a very short break, we're going to talk about your experience raising the first fund and you know, what the feedback was, what the experience was, and then, you know, how you're sort of operating the fund now that you've got a, an oversubscribed 40 plus million dollar fund to invest in and where we go from here. We'll be right back. This spot is reserved for you, our sponsors. If you'd like to be a part of the show and get your name to be associated with us and become a sponsor of a segment for the Disruptive Innovation Podcast, then reach out to Mike and Nikiso at Iwantin at DisruptiveInnovationPodcast.com or this is cool at disruptiveinnovationpodcast.com. Thank you. 
All right. So we're here having a wonderful discussion with Jared Tingle, managing and founding partner of Harlem Capital Partners, whose mission is to invest in 1,000 startups over the next 20 years that are led by underrepresented founders and incredibly um, just inspiring vision and a, and a great backstory that takes us to where we are. So Jared, now we're sitting here, and as you said, you had, after a lot of observation, both by sitting in a PE firm and then this remarkable experience where you're being invited as a young man to present you know, to conferences where all you've got maybe is the ability to write a 20K check, you're starting to realize just how asymmetrical this world of venture investment really is. And obviously the light bulb goes off and you decide that you're going to move away from the more informal angel syndicate to you're raising a fund. So take me through what that was like, right? You appear on, on a, I think it was the inside cover, wonderful color photo of you and your, your three colleagues, you know, Wall Street Journal this summer. And then, you know, th this journey had to accelerate from there. So take us through sure. sort of that, that period between, you know, um, when you decided to raise the fund and that, that, that first close that happened in November. Okay. Yep. Happy to, happy to do that. So, it hindsight's twenty twenty. It, it kind of looks linear if you if you look back at it. But honestly, we had a lot of internal dialogue and if and when and how big we wanted to do this. Yeah. So candidly speaking, when Henri and I got into Harvard, so we both got in. We we're both working at the same firm before. Both got into Harvard. Decided to be roommates. We talked about Harlem Capital, but but had no idea that we would do it full time this yeah. soon. At least. Yeah. I was still recruiting for private equity jobs. Henri was recruiting for VC firms. Eventually, like I didn't get the job I wanted. He didn't like the firms that he <laughs> he was looking at because they weren't diverse. And we said, "Hey, we're getting we're starting to get traction on the media front, at least on our fund. Yeah, we have decent sourcing. Let, let's go for it." Yeah. Um. So, what we decided was that doing this during business school was a low risk time for us. You can kind of do an internship or not. It doesn't really affect your job prospects that much. So we decided to start raising during the summer between our first and second year. Um, we, we, we had a launch, we had a deck that we had been working on for a while and we just started going out to friends, former colleagues and stuff. And it, it was hard. I mean, we took a bunch of meetings. Uh, we had a lot of feedback, got a lot of resistance. Um, a lot of people said, Hey, you're too young. You need more experience. You haven't done VC before. Um, aside from the fact that VC is a challenging asset class to get funded in general, like literally we had every knock against us. Uh, but I think what we did have is we had persistence, we had a decent strategy, and eventually we were able just to get in front of the, the right people. So we actually met some private equity titans over the summer. Um, they didn't invest in summer 2018, but we got a lot of good feedback and they were supportive. And so that at least gave us the feel that we needed to keep going. I think eventually we made a decision that instead of just kind of changing our pitch and kind of being flexible in meetings, we just said, hey... This is what we're doing. Yeah. You're either in or you're out. That's great. And I think once we did that, yeah. plus we had a private equity titan say, hey, like you guys got to do this. It really had a paradigm shift for us. So that was um, it. I think So the courage of your convictions, you were given permission to have the courage of your convictions. Exactly. By someone you exactly. respected. And that was it. Yeah. Exactly. But eventually we got a million dollars from a family office led by, by a private equity magnet. That was really worth five or $10 million to us because yeah. that person's stamp of approval yeah. was phenomenal. Um, eventually, we got introduced to TPG, who um, ended up being our anchor investor. And then we we finished with $12.5 um raised when we graduated. And from there, we just 
really hit the institutional circuit hard and were able to end up with six institutions ultimately in our first fund. That's um, I can talk, I can double click on anything you want to talk about. I mean, I, I have all day. I don't know how long you have. Yeah. Well, I know um, you've got a, I know how t- busy you are for sure. and you've got, you've got a, a reasonably hard step. So listen, I love it. I, first of all, again, the fact that you finally said, this is who we are. This is what we stand for. And, you know, damn the torpedoes full speed ahead, right? That ultimately is what it's all about, right? I mean, the conviction of any visionary, a lot of great visionaries are questioned until they prove the world otherwise, right? And that's exactly what you guys did. And and, and so what I'd like to do, maybe just go forward now, now that you've got the fund, right? And we could always come back for an update at any time. I, I am incredibly inspired by you, Jared. I say that with with the deepest sincerity, um, but I'd love to now, you know, talk a little bit about how you're operating this fund, right? Because what you're doing is so different than anyone else, right? You, you're giving out your email addresses. And unlike the world of VC that I've I've been a part of for the last 20 plus years, right? It's not about a privileged introduction. It's about send me an email and we're going to get back to you in two weeks with some thoughts. That's profoundly different. And it's obviously a huge amount of work that you're taking on. So talk about how that's been working for you guys. Yeah, no, it's it's been incredible. Um, from an opportunity perspective, um, we had two deals in the last you know month or so that were inbounds, um, and they probably saw the Wall Street Journal article or something else we put out, and they reached out. So there's definitely value in in having that. Uh, but I think our philosophy more broadly is that dealing with a, a packed inbox is extremely tough. Yeah, uh, but we think it's worthwhile mainly because if we're trying to help create more pathways to capital. We can't just do what everyone else has done. Right. Some funds, they rely on Y Combinator. Some funds just only have five or six VC funds they talk to all the time and they just send each other deals. Some only go to HBS or Stanford classmates, et cetera, or industry conferences. But th- there, there is a barrier to getting into some of these spaces. And so we say, hey, like, let's make it easier for people to get a hold of us. Let's make ourselves accessible. And as a result, will help find the best opportunities and people that traditionally haven't had access, they will now at least have a shot of, of talking to us. Yeah. Um, but I think right now we're on track to see a thousand deals this year. We saw 800 last year. Wow. Um, one thing that we get leverage out of is the fact that we have interns, Yeah. Um, which is a whole completely different discussion. And I, I can move my heart stop. I don't know when yours is. Yeah, no, uh, but I guess let's in, keep going. in short, yeah, yeah in, in short, um, we get a lot of leverage out of them because they're able to crank and help us kind of filter through all these deals. We obviously still are very actively involved, but some of the data entry and things they, they help us handle. Um, But I think the bigger benefit of that, or it's two big benefits. One is we get access to that talent. Absolutely. Um, So to, to clarify our internship program is part-time and it's remote. Yeah. So it's not just college students. It's actually mostly MBAs and full-time folks who just want to have access to VC. Right. Because there hasn't been opportunities there are a ton, like hundreds of diverse folks that will love to do VC Absolutely. and we're able to get the cream of the crop. Um, they hit the ground running really easily. We've actually hired two senior associates from our former intern pool. Um, and then I guess broader, we can't hire everybody, but we can help create more diverse investors. So you had several interns come through our program and then be competitive intern or full-time candidates for other VC firms. And now you have like the Goldman or McKinsey effect where like your alumni go do things. They refer you business. They help you source deals. And it's really a great way to help supercharge the ecosystem. Um, so it's been tremendous from, from all fronts. And 
it was tough to start out, but now we have it pretty much automated and it's been an amazing kind of opportunity set for us. I love it. I mean, I, you know, as a guy that's been both a, a professor of entrepreneurship and a practicing entrepreneur simultaneously for the last 25 years, I would say that interns has been one of the secrets of my success. And I couldn't agree with you more, right? And, and there's so much just mutual value that goes back and forth, especially with people looking for opportunities, looking for experience. Um, but of course, you're, you have a wider mission, which is to create this community of people with diverse backgrounds that understand VC, that make them far more well-versed. And, and I, I love what you're doing. I think it's brilliant. I really do. Now, you have also you know, published very, very clearly, probably as coherently as any venture firm I've seen, your investment criteria. Could you walk us through that? Sure. Um, I can walk you through it. I mean, I think like, like most other firms, we're focused on team market product um, for different reasons. But I mean, honestly, those are the core things you look for in a VC investment. Yeah. We also are more focused on ownership and exit returns um, than we have been historically. I think from a specific perspective, we like to invest post product in companies. Yeah. We don't really want to take like a launch risk. We want to make sure you're kind of fully baked. We like companies that are in billion dollar plus markets. You can't outgrow your market. And given the parallel dynamics of VC, you really do want to have companies with the potential to grow to 100 million or so in revenue so you can get the 20, 50x exit if things kind of kind of all go well and you get lucky. Um, we like really strong management teams. It's great if you have past experience, if you have started a company before. But I think I, I care about, are you uniquely qualified to do this? Um, it's always interesting. And I think in general, we gravitate towards people that are very... Salesy, honestly, um, aggressive and, and analytical because that's kind of how we are. Mm-hmm. And we find that those are characteristics that definitely lead to raising money, um, can lead to, to inspiring talent, can hopefully lead to you also growing a great business. Okay. Um, I don't want to dive into the rest yeah. of them too much, but yeah. those are generally um, the ones that are important. Yeah. And you guys will either lead or follow and you'll do either a seed or an A. So you're operating, you know, still at a, at a very early stage of the asset class, still taking on quite a bit of risk. But as you said, it's 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 post product, it's post launch. So at least there's some level of understanding of market reaction and traction, right? Which is correct. And most of our companies yeah. end up having revenue. Yeah. Um, the ones that don't, they usually are second time founders or someone with you know a ton, a ton of traction that could turn it on at any time. Yeah, and you're also very decisive, right? As I went to the website, I remember at least once or twice, you know, reading, um, you know, one of the testimonials where you may have met a founder and within, you know, 60 days, you made an investment. So you guys are moving very quickly. Yeah. I mean, we, we, um, can make a decision in two, three weeks from our initial call to a meeting. Yeah. Um, we obviously like to have more time, but honestly, in some of the best deals, you got to move faster. Um, yeah, two months is a crazy long time for us now. So wow. yeah, we're cycling them through. Wow. That's impressive. Cause I know there are some ecosystems where, you know, two months would be considered miraculous. Quite frankly, in mm-hmm. some in countries outside the U.S., two months would be record shattering. So, yeah. so now let me ask you. I know you love all your children equally. I think you've made how many investments at this point? Over ten, of course, right? Mm-hmm. We made ten out of the fund. We have two closing next week, and okay. um, that, so that's out of the fund. And then we have our six angel deals that we did yeah. with our own capital before the, the fund launch. Right. I know you love all your children equally, but let me ask you to talk about maybe two or three of the deals that you've done that you're really excited about and, and a little bit of why you're so excited. Yep. I'll tick through a couple. Yeah. Um, one is called Wagmo. It's a pet wellness company. 
Um, the founder has a background in insurance um, and finance. And while she was at HBS, actually a year ahead of us, her dog got diagnosed with a tumor. She ended up spending $10,000 out of pocket. Oh, yeah. Um, but really, this, this helped her focus on the problem. And she really found that in the U.S., at least, we're very unpenetrated. Um, and there's just huge macro trends of pet insurance because you have millennials, you have baby boomers getting excited about having pets. Absolutely. You have the emotional connection. And then you don't want to have the kind of outsized outcome that could happen if your pet gets sick. Um, this is compared to, so in, in the U S only 1% of cats and dogs are covered by insurance Yeah, in Europe, it's, it's 20 to 60% in some countries, but anyway, no, and I they're love really it. revolutionizing this. They're starting with a wellness product. They're reimbursed for routine care, Yeah, but eventually they'll have a more full sleep, vertically integrated insurance product as well. Um, they're tremendous. I, I lo- listen, I love it. I, I was trying to also happen to be a massive market. That's a different discussion because they, they're really into pets. But my brother's uh, shepherd died of cancer recently and, and went through three or four years of treatment. And I come from a, a family of dog lovers and, and I can only resonate, you know, more than you can imagine with, with the value prop that this company has. It seems like the, the market is limitless right now. Yeah. And, yeah. Yep. and this one's called Wagmo. They're based yeah. in New York. Right. Um, so. Super excited to be back in that founder. It's a female founder uh, based out of New York now. I'll talk about one more briefly. Sure. It's Jobble. It's ran by African-American man um, in Boston, actually. And they're a gig economy marketplace. Yeah. Um, so if you think about historically how people have been posting jobs online, like full-time jobs, you think about Monster, you think about Indeed, but no one's really saw this market for the gig economy. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jobble is operating in all 50 states. They do everything from soup to nuts. They help you source candidates all the way to onboarding and payroll and insurance. Um, they work with flexible economy companies like Uber, Postmates, et cetera, but they also work with other folks that have just you know seasonal or peak demand. They do a lot of stuff with events. Um, but anyway, they found that there's a ton of people that want to have flexible work arrangements either as a secondary source of income. Yeah or as a primary source of income. And this opportunity is massive. So they're actually a market leader. They've actually are, are very low profile given what they've done from like a revenue and traction perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but this business has been growing like wildfire. And I think they're really well positioned to potentially be a unicorn. That's great. And so when you say that they actually will work with, you know, a big gig economy kind of company like Uber, is this because they're focused on helping the gig economy worker to manage their finances and manage their life while they take on these various gigs? Is that really their, their value prop? Yes. I mean, it's, it's a couple things. Um, they really do everything you need. Yeah. Um, but I guess for companies that are regularly working with gig economy employees, um, they do see a lot of churn. Yeah. And so I think sometimes they just need new sourcing channels. Interesting. So Jobble acts as a marketplace where you have you know, I don't even want to, I can't even say what number, but a very large number of independent workers and they help pair them with companies that are looking for on-demand labor. Okay. Another massive market with that is just the future of work. It's, it's, you couldn't be on better on trend with these two projects that you've just shared. Very, very cool. So now you, you raised a little over what, 43 and a half, if I remember the number correctly, 43 and a half million in fund one. How long do you expect that you'll continue to invest out of that fund? Yes. So we technically had our first close in November of 2018. So we've been investing along the way as we were raising. Yeah. We'll probably be done with our initial checks by end of 2021. Okay. So kind of a three-year deployment um, cycle, and then we'll reserve the rest for follow-ons. Yeah. 
for the years thereafter. Um, and yeah, I mean, we'll probably be back to market in not so the not so distant future. Yeah, um, we have grand aspirations, but overall ideas to invest in thirty companies. We've already done twelve performer for the ones closing next week. Yeah, um, so we should be right on track. We want to do ten deals a year, so that'll get us through the end of twenty twenty one. Very cool. So, listen, are there any questions, Jared? I haven't asked you anything else you want to share with our listeners about the fund and your vision and and um you know, maybe if to the extent that they, they are inspired by what we've talked about, obviously, you know, I'll, I'll publish your website and they know to, you know, reach out to you. I know on your website, you have three or four different email addresses from you and your colleagues for, for, um, you know, having people reach out. Is there any specialization where certain colleagues focus on certain kinds of investments, certain industries, or it's pretty much, you know, send whoever you want to, it's all going to wind up in the same inbox and get vetted the same way. Yeah, no, if you're inspired, I mean, feel free to reach out. We love to make connections. We have a lot of volume, but we do like to connect with people. So if you're interested in learning more or sending us deals or interning, whatever, let us know. We also have a newsletter yeah. coming out. So it's a great way to stay in touch. And one thing I haven't talked about is just that we're, we're trying to do. So we've been very involved, you know, remotely and via social media, et cetera. But now we're trying to have a more physical presence, especially in New York. Yeah. So we're actually hosting more events now. And so for anyone that wants to be in the loop, feel free to join our newsletter, which is on our website. Um, and hopefully we can, can meet soon. That's great. And are you actively recruiting interns or are you, you know, very much like with the, the, the founders that are looking for funding? Are you just taking a more sort of passive, you know, if someone wants to get in touch with you because they're looking for an internship, just have them come out and, and send you a CV with a with a captivating subject line. How do you think about sourcing your interns over over time? Yeah, no, our program is pretty rigorous. Yeah. Um, so it's technically a quarterly program. We do it probably about three times a year. Yeah. And we've had 40 interns already since spring of 2018. We've had 2,000 applicants. So it is extremely competitive. So we can't just take one-offs. We have... Yeah an open date and a close date, but yeah. we, we are open now. Um, okay. We just opened it yesterday to close on March 18th. Okay. So we're currently looking for summer 2020 interns. That's great. So um, timing is so great you, on the if podcast. If you do reach out, it's not on cycle. Yeah. We'll try to hold your resume, but we really do need you to kind of apply when we have the application open. That's great. So timing is great for people looking to join the next cohort. I love it. All right. And then just final question. So, you know, the vision that you've stated, and I love the vision, it's an incredibly uh, exciting one. You want to you want to fund a thousand startups. Um, what what do you think will be different in the world when you've funded a thousand? I imagine there's going to be quite a ripple effect that you're going to inspire other firms to pick up the mantle and, you know, in many ways, try to do things similar to what you're doing from, you know, it may not be Harlem, it could be from East LA, it could be from, you know, anywhere in the country. But what do you hope that, that, you know, hitting that thousand threshold will do here? Yeah, no, I mean, we're hoping that the founders that we invest in, hopefully that uh, a decent amount, you know, double digit percentage end up exiting for, for very high valuations. Yeah. Are able to have their personal wealth. They'll hire hundreds of people in the process and reinvest in their community. I think that would be massive. Uh, we would love to see, you know, wealth be distributed a little bit more equally. Um, I mean, we're very heavily into capitalism, but we do think, um, more people should have access to participate at, at the highest level. Yeah. Um, we would love to see more funds focus on diversity. I think in aggregate, we would love to see capital flows kind of flow, of course, to the population. It's going to take a very long time, but hopefully 
were able to help, you know, make this, this happen faster and accelerate the change. I love it. Well, Jared, I, again, I, as, as we talked about, I, I've spent quite a bit of time trying to get you to join me, but it was worth uh, every minute of the pursuit. Um, I am incredibly impressed by you as a young man and as a, as a agent of change. And I want to thank you for taking an hour out of your busy schedule to join me today for a very open discussion. I wish you and your co- colleagues every success. I would love to help you in any way possible. And I'm sure many of my listeners would feel the same way. Uh, I wish you a lot of luck investing out of this fund. And um, to all of my listeners, uh, thank you for joining me and Jared. And um, if you like what you've been hearing, and I think this is episode 20, so we've hit our own milestone here, please rate and review us. And this is Mike Grandinetti for the Disruptive Innovation Podcast, signing off until next time.